Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Born in 1861 in New Mexico's Acoma Pueblo, Edward Proctor Hunt lived a tribal life, kind of life almost unchanged for centuries. But after attending government schools, he broke with his people's ancient codes to become a shopkeeper and controversial broker between Indian and white worlds. As a Wild West show Indian, he traveled in Europe with his family and saw his sons become silversmiths, painters, and consultants on Indian lore. In 1928, in a life-culminating experience, he recited his version of the origin myth of Acomo Pueblo to Smithsonian Institution scholars. This fascinating story is recounted by Peter Nabokov in his new book, How the World Moves, the Odyssey of an American Indian Family. Peter Nabokov is professor of American Indian Studies and World Arts and Cultures at UCLA. His previous books include A Forest of Time, Native American Testimony, Native American Architecture, Indian Running, Two Leggings, The Making of a Crow Warrior, and Architecture of a Como Pueblo. Peter Nabokov will uh, be in Utah for several events as a part of Utah Humanities Book Festival and sponsored by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies and the Utah Humanities Council. On October 1st, so next Thursday, he's at BYU at the Charles Red Center, 11 a.m. That evening, October 1st, 6 p.m., University of Utah, the Carolyn Tanner Irish Humanities Building, and then back to Brigham Young University on October 7th at noon. Peter Nabokov, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. This is a, a fascinating story. And, uh, you know, we could take three hours uh, recounting it. We'll, we'll get in as much as we, we can here. Uh, I wonder, first of you, you could tell us a bit about the, uh, the, the Pueblo, the, the world into which, uh, as he was known, uh, Daybreak it was born in 1861. Acoma Pueblo. Oh, it's Acoma. Okay. Acoma Pueblo, yeah. Is, uh, Carizan speaking, that's the language, Pueblo, about 40 miles uh, west of Albuquerque. And it's... Um, and it's 15 miles south of uh, of I-40. It's a remarkable place. Um, it are, is arguably the oldest continuously inhabited village in North America. It kind of competes with that honor with, with Taos and with Oribe Pueblos. But uh, it's been there for a long time. And even when the migrants, the ancient migrants that are described in the community's oral tradition arrived, there had already been people who had lived there. It's about 375 feet high sandstone mesa, kind of perched above the 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 ordinary and the everyday, and when you go there as a guest during the St. Stephen's Day Fiesta, the, the, the community sort of meter and greeter opportunity for outsiders to come uh, and see the, see the summer dances. Um, it comes alive in a way that 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 sort of makes you understand the the importance as a as a sanctuary, the importance as a sacred place, elevated as I said above the ordinary and, and the and the everyday, and uh, a place where you can see two or three weather systems at the same time. Um, and then there's Mount Taylor, the sacred mountain of the north, to the Akama people. So it sort of is the pivot of the universe for these folks. Tell me about the, uh, the the ritual. Four days old. This would have been usual, I guess, for all children. Right. The naming ritual. That would have been the first for most kids. That would be the first initiation that they would go through, which transforms them from being a amorphous uh, <laughs> little kid, uh, very very little, 
to uh, to a member of the community with a name that usually for the Pueblo people uh, is associated with the seasons or with the generative cycle of, of, of gardening and agriculture. So the, the, the medicine man selected by the family would uh, take the, or took the boy, daybreak, yeah. he was called, to the edge yeah. of the mesa to, to uh, I guess, to face the sun. To greet the sun. Yeah. To greet the sun. Yeah, so they greet the sun and they take in the breath of, from the sun and that life-giving breath. And uh, the name is, is, is chosen um, either by the parents or by the medicine man. I think it can go either way. I've never witnessed this ritual. I have uh, I cobbled together my account of it from the various memories that were left by the gentleman whose name you you mentioned, Edward Proctor Hunt. And so he received the name of uh, I guess Daybreak's the shortened version, first light of dawn. You could get right. it even even longer. The the very first light. Right. Beautiful name. Um, so he was born to uh, a woman of the the Akama people, but his his father was not. Well, that's unclear, and I just sort of leave it like that. Um, it, it, the, apparently, uh, either his father or his grandfather were were not were not from the pueblo. But I used what information I had, which were from various sources, and then I I tried not to pry further. And when I did inquire of his last surviving of twelve children, uh, Wilbert uh, Blue Sky Eagle Hunt. He sort of would have a little smile on his face and said, "We really don't know, but uh, that's what we're told that uh, <laughs> that my grandfather was uh, was not of the community." And yet, uh, you know, this this the point should be made that uh, it's the social father rather than the genetic father mm-hmm. that's most important. So he had a stepfather who we believe his name is was Faustino Ray, and there are photographs of him, very handsome man. And then you also, in, in, in many uh, communities like this, particularly in one where the women's roles are so important, it's mother's brother who will do the tutelage, who will do actually the kinds of dad things that we expect of a genetic father. But it's, 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 it's mother's brother, the uncle. And we see him appear periodically throughout the early chapters of the book. And he would have been uh, part of his mother's clan, um, uh, you know, that's this principal right, role. Right, he would have, exactly, yeah. And, but also, um, I, I can't remember how you how you put it, uh, a small member of the, the father's clan as well. Right, right. You're a member of both your maternal and paternal clan, but that's very correct. And there are different ways that that's described among different people. Sometimes it's the larger clan, the lesser clan. Navajo people, when they when they announce themselves and declare their bona fides, always declare their mothers and their fathers' clans. So the, the, the ritual life is very important. Um, you know, you, have, you, you, you work in agriculture, but, uh, and, you know, the, the, the various aspects of daily life, but the ritual is very important. That became important to the, to the boy, and uh, um, like most Pueblo boys, you write, around the age of five or six, he was inducted into the, is it called Katsina Society? Right. Uh, so tell me about Katsina that. Society. Yeah. Well, this is the um, this is the society as described in the origin myth, the 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 creation of these spiritual beings, katsinas, who are intermediaries between human beings and the greater cosmic forces. And there are a range of them, and they have personalities. 
They're probably best known to outsiders, to we outsiders, among the Hopi and Zuni people, because they're a little bit more forthcoming about the identities and the stories of their Katsinas. The the Akamas, both for reason, uh, indigenous reasons as well as their terrible historical experiences, have kept their 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 ritual and, and religious lives rather private. And um, and I tried to respect that uh, using some of of Edward Hunt's information about that in general when the Katsinas come to the Pueblo twice a year, their winter group and there's a summer group, and um, their behaviors, and and then cite portions of the origin myth which describes the original break between these Katsinas and human beings. And that's that break is mediated or bridged by the phenomenal invention uh, that is given to the Akama people by the two sisters who are their primary deities, the invention of, of, of performance, the invention of impersonation. And so people are initiated into the Katsina society and are taught the, the stories associated with the Katsinas in general and with their particular Katsina and uh, learn that the Katsina dances that they have seen, which they were told, were being played or participated in by actual Katsinas are actually their own people impersonating them. But this business of impersonation needs to be, if I can just for a quick second, underscore it, because it's human beings half becoming that which they are performing. And that power to half become is invested in the mask. So the mask or the face of the katsina is all important. And this, uh, and we find this in masking traditions the world over, but it's particularly important and central in the southwestern Pueblos, particularly the western Pueblos today of Zuni, as I said, and Hopi, where where the people, ha- uh, the individuals have a particular identity with their katsina, and during the period of time that this performance is taking place, this this practice, our words are so insufficient to describe this semi- transformation of a human being into, for the period of time of the dance and the ritual, uh, half becoming that which they are performing. What I'm curious, what what does this ritual do for the people? How, how do they experience it? What is it? Uh, how does I do it... not know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you, I, <laughs> I, I was wondering, maybe you've you talked to some people, uh, you know, I, I don't know, maybe... Not maybe really, no, okay. nobody's ever talked to me about, I mean, Edward has talked a little bit about that, but he never talked about what could see if he did perform we know he was in we know he was initiated we know he was inducted but he never talked about what it for a casino he performed or or enacted as he never said what the experience was like he only said, described the experience uh from the standpoint of being a kid watching them come in and being awed by them intimidated by them but uh we really know nothing about the interior life of a person during uh, their participation in mm-hmm. one of these events. Well, we do know that these, the, these the, you know, the, the, the myths, the, the stories, the rituals, obviously very important to the people. They, they have lasted, been handed down. Absolutely. Very important. 
Uh, Very important. And Edward, because of unusual circumstances, because the two initiations that you just mentioned were kind of expected, expectant of every youngster, but then he had this experience of getting kicked in the head by a horse when he was about eight or nine, and he was knocked out, and he went into a coma, the way it's described. I have various accounts of this uh, that he gave, um, and they were preparing him for burial. His, his burial shroud was already prepared, and they were going to take him by wagon up to the mesa and bury him in the uh, in the uh, graveyard that's in front of St. Stephen Church. And he came to. And coming to after an event where to all to all, uh, you know, it just looked like he had joined the world of the dead. And from all appearances, he was a goner. And that means that that is an automatic signal of of readiness to be inducted into the world of healers, medicine men, like his father, like his stepfather, but we call him his father, was also a medicine man. And this was not particularly desirable because your life was sort of dedicated to a heavy, a heavier than normal uh, round of ritual uh, participations. Um, you were in the kivas and the sacred chambers a lot of your time from everything I can gather. Plus, there were your patients, people with various afflictions for whom you had to do elaborate and learn how to do elaborate rituals. And he underwent, from all accounts, he underwent training for that office. And in that training, as with all of these initiations, a portion of the origin myth, as best as I can gather it, the portion of the origin myth that sanctioned that particular role, whatever that role might be, was told it. And uh, these uh, initiates were required to know the, learn the story, know the story, and, uh, and the details, some of the esoteric details that were part of the story. So he began to accumulate uh, at a very early age, under the age of 10, from everything we can understand, a inordinate amount of, of, of this kind of information. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll continue the story. It's a fascinating story of uh, the, the boy who was called Daybreak, who became Edward Proctor Hunt, and uh, later in his that life, became, was, no, Big Snake, right? Became Big Snake Chief later. Big Snake, right. Chief Big Snake. His performing name. When he, yeah. when he was, would go on, on a tour in Europe and uh, dress in, in, the, in the guise of a Plains Indian, so that it all gets very right. interesting. And uh, as uh, Peter Nabokov, my guest, writes in the introduction to How the World Moves, the Odyssey of an American Indian Family, Edward's lifespan covered a period of the greatest displacement of indigenous peoples in world history. And for, you know, many reasons. And the story behind the Hunt families, Hegira, is akin to that of refugees in general, who must face anguishing decisions about staying put or reaching out for more survivable and successful futures. And uh, that uh, that uh, tension between uh, traditional life and... Uh, and the life out there is certainly describes the decisions that the Hunt family had to make. We'll tell more of this story following the break. If you're downsizing and have a vehicle that you rarely use anymore, why not donate it to the UPR Vehicle Donation Program? Help support the programs important to you with your car, truck, or RV. 
Donating is easy at 877-877-7501 or online at upr.org. We'll pick up your donation and send you all the paperwork. Just call us anytime at 877-877-7501 or online at upr.org. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. She starred in the Before Sunrise trilogy, and now French actor Julie Delpy is back with Lolo, about a single mom whose teenage son gets in the way of her new suitor. Next time on Q, I'll talk to Julie about working both sides of the camera. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Today at 1 o'clock... You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. And my guest today is Peter Nabokov. He is a professor of American Indian Studies and World Arts and Cultures at UCLA. His new book is How the World Moves The Odyssey of an American Indian Family. And out in companion with that is Edward Proctor Hunt's The Origin Myth of the Akama Pueblo, edited and with introduction notes by Peter Nabokov. Peter Nabokov is coming to Utah, three events, as a part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival, the sponsored by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies and Utah Humanities Council. First event is Thursday, October 1st, 11 a.m. at Brigham Young University. That'll be in Zion Auditorium in the Joseph F. Smith Building. And then that evening, Thursday evening, October 1st, 6 p.m., University of Utah. And the venue there is Carolyn Tanner Irish Humanities Building. And then back to Brigham Young University on October 2nd, that Friday. That's, that'll be at noon in the Zion Auditorium, Joseph F. Smith Building on the Brigham Young University campus. And uh, those uh, events are free and open to the public and a part of the Utah Humanities uh, Book Festival. Uh, so, Peter Nabokov, uh, I wonder, before we uh, continue with uh, Edward uh, Proctor Hunt's uh, story, uh, we'll be getting into conflict between you know different worlds, the white world and the, and the Indian world, the world of the Pueblo there. Um, I wonder if we could go back. You you made brief reference to you know some some atrocities. Um, the the Spanish, I think the 1600s, uh, in a reprisal for uh, the killing of uh, of several uh, Spaniards, uh, uh, exacted a horrible revenge. Right. It was at the end of the 16th century, and they did. They uh, ultimately uh, destroyed the Pueblo with howitzers. Uh, they scaled the mesa. Bloody fighting. Hundreds dying. Uh, all the roofs that were um, underneath the adobe, it's all thatch and, and rafters, pine rafters, up in flames. I destroyed the crops. And... Um, and according to the edict, uh, cut off the uh, left feet of um, of young men, many of the young men between eighteen and twenty-five, I believe, and uh, and sold many of the women and children into slavery into into old Mexico, and the pueblo sort of uh, went into uh, a deep deep withdrawal and depression, and oddly enough. They came out of this thanks to a Catholic priest who came in the 1620s and stayed the rest of his life, um, helped to build St. Stephen Church. Um, some say uh, people were dragooned into that activity and that it was more forced labor. 
Um, but in any case, the buildings were reconstructed after the after these these horrible events. But the pueblo never forgave the Spanish and and willingly joined in the all pueblo revolt of August 1680, when all the pueblos finally had enough with the increasingly oppressive and anti-pagan, uh, uh, as they were described, anti-pagan uh, uh, practices of the Spanish, um, whipping uh, medicine men in downtown Santa Fe, <coughs> excuse me, um, hanging some. And one of the people who was who was so tortured came from San Juan Pueblo, okay, Oenge, and uh, and uh, his name was Pope, from all accounts, who led the All Pueblo Revolt, which ended up being the most successful American Indian rebellion in 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 our continent's history. And I say successful because even though the Spanish returned in 1692 and there was the famous reconquest, their power was never the same, and they backed off of stern edicts against traditional religion, and that was when you really started to have the this strange divided authority structure up on these mesas or, or these communities alongside the Rio Grande River, if we're talking about the eastern Pueblos, or in the high desert, if we're talking about the western Pueblos like Acoma and Zuni and Hopi, and this division involved a, a governmental apparatus that the Spanish instituted for sort of dealing with the outside world and the retention of the medicine men and the war chiefs and the cacique, as he's called, the mother of the Pueblo, uh, leadership from the inside of the community. And uh, that reigned, that dominated to this, and uh, dominates to this, to this very day. Hmm. So with that backdrop, that, you know, it's an ongoing tension and conflict, uh, a Presbyterian minister, as I understand it, uh, shows up and, and persuades Several of the families to send their sons uh, off to a off to a school in Albuquerque, right? Right. right. In the in the aftermath of the Civil War, a new policy kind of extended across Indian country, and generally speaking, we call it the assimilation or civilization policy. And uh, General Grant's it's also called General Grant's Ulysses S. Grant's peace policy, and as part of Many of its it had many many different aspects, but one of the aspects was to started by a man named Richard Pratt at, at um, Carlisle Institute, a former fighter against Indians who turned into an educator. Uh, this involved boarding schools where young boys and young girls would be taken um, and uh, uniformed, their hair cut, and uh, taught the three R's. Um, highly regimented lifestyle, uh, separated uh, uh, dormitories, uh, punished if you spoke uh, your native language, your hair is cut, and given new names. And uh, one was begun in Albuquerque. At the time, they didn't have a building, so they, drug, they sort of took over a, a building in the, in the Hispano portion of the Duranis neighborhood of, uh, of Albuquerque. And uh, Edward was part of the first group. Uh, they had a contingent of some 30 kids from Akama, whose, whose, whose parents were persuaded to give them up. And, uh, and usually these were the poorest 
parents, the ones that were having the hardest time feeding their families, and the medicine men are, generally speaking, the most, the, the poorest, because they're always busy making medicine. And But Edward, from the account, an account that he dictated early on, actually wanted to go. And so they left the Pueblo in wagons, they went to the Rio Grande, they crossed the Rio Grande, the parents waited along the banks of the Rio Grande for a few weeks to make sure their kids were okay. And this utterly new lifestyle began on day one. Hmm. Um, And for many, it was an absolute shock. Uh, One of the things that I, however, tried to describe is that in the numerous accounts which have accumulated, particularly by scholars in recent years, of various boarding schools, specifically, uh, whether it be Riverside that we have here, Sherman Institute, uh, as it was Carlisle, of course, and a host of others, a host of others, uh, the experiences were not uniformly negative. Uh, Many people remember them fondly. And you have to remember that these boarding schools also became the seedbed for what we call pan-Indian associations of one sort or another. Of course, marriages would ultimately result, boys and girls meeting each other from different tribes. But also, people who now had a background, a similar background in these boarding schools and could read and write and had eyes to see what and, and, you know what was going on in among for their people in a wider way politically and socially could now take issue with what was going on so many of the earliest militants like Carlos Montezuma and others uh were spawned by this boarding school experience and Edward stayed Edward actually ended up building the first Albuquerque Indian school because they were housed in these temporary quarters and he was there for, from what we can guess, three years. Uh, and uh, the three years, uh, yeah, at the end of those three years, uh, I guess the Catholic authorities, jealous of the of the turf, the, the <laughs> intrusion on their turf, the Presbyterians, as you put it, right. uh, pressured the parents to bring the boys back. And uh, so what happened to the boys when they, when they did come back? Yeah, this is an interesting conflict, the Protestant-Catholic conflict, as it was reflected in Indian country, particularly in the Southwest, because that is true. And the Catholics felt that the dispersal to uh, various uh, religious sects by this uh, uh, peace policy uh, to take control of reservations, whether they be Quakers or Lutherans or whatever, was unfair uh, demographically that the the Catholics were getting the short end of the stick. And so a particularly aggressive, from what I can gather, Catholic missionary went and said, you know, look to the Akama elders. We were, <laughs> essentially, we were here first. You have a loyalty to us. We messed with your lives uh, minimally after the 1680 rebellion, um, and you shouldn't be sending them to this Pro- these Protestant institutions, which, to be sure, were taking a much greater, um, having a much greater impact on changing the lives of of Indian people, because they were part of this whole regime of transformation to separate parents, parental generation from the young generation, to break up the tribal mass. It was part of the allotment policy that tried to break up the lands also, and 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 encourage individual, personal, family farms rather than communal activities. 
uh, a ban that began in the 1880s against traditional Indian religious practices, whether they be the Sundance or whatever. Those bans were not felt as heavily at this time in the Southwest, but nonetheless, that was the, the tone that the Catholics were saying, look, we never did that to you. So Akama was persuaded to send the kids to pull them from the, from the Protestant school, and Edward started school then in Santa Fe, not in Albuquerque, at a still yet another unbuilt institution, St. Catherine Indian School, just outside of, of, of Santa Fe proper. And uh, so he spent, um, from, I'm trying to recall, I don't have the book in front of me, unfortunately, but, uh, a year or so there, um, and, uh, and helped to do the same. And I describe in the book the slightly different regime that's taking place, because the Catholics are as much concerned with religious indoctrination and education in a typical parochial way, as they are with the with the intellectual, the three R's and, and the rest of it. So there is a routine, ritual routine, the Catholic ritual routine, which in Santa Fe generally was pretty intense. Uh, there was hardly a month went by that there was not some sort of procession or some sort of saint's day uh, taking place. And uh, he got involved in that until one day he was called to the main building, and uh, his uncle was there telling him that his father had died back at Akamu. The man had an extra horse, and within an hour or so from what his son told me, he was off and going back to the Mesa. And he became, I guess at the at stepfather's dying wish, he was indoctrinated into the Akama's Brotherhood of, of Sacred Clowns. Tell me, tell me about exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's a very important office. Uh, the origin myth describes again and again the role of the sacred clowns, and they're kind of they're a fascinating uh, figure. Uh, they burlesque activities that are otherwise extremely sacred and untouchable. They make fun of them. They make fun of people who think they're too important. They make fun of tourists. They make fun of other Indian tribes. They're kind of a permanent trickster figure. In many Indian communities, we find these figures, but they are particularly well organized uh, among the Pueblos, not surprisingly, because we we generally see societies among the Pueblos uh, as the form of organization, and here it's the form of organization for the Koshari, or the sacred clowns. And he gets indoctrinated into this brotherhood, a lengthy indoctrination, which he later describes to a number of different uh, scholars and visitors to the community. Edward S. Curtis, the great photographer, is uh, Edward becomes his his go-between. Uh, Leslie White, the ethnographer, uh, immediately seizes upon Edward as a as a person to talk with and who's very available and open to discuss private matters. So he becomes a, a sacred clown. Now, again, uh, as with the Katsina Society, he never describes uh, actually what he does as a sacred clown in his memories, and his son did not know. So there's a certain way that he is disclosing in later years his participation in these highly traditional events, and yet also keeping certain kinds of information to himself. And... Uh, and yet he did describe the initiation ceremony at, at some length. Um, I only sketch it uh, 
and take information from a great number of scholars who have looked at the role of sacred clowns, because obviously it's appealing to outsiders. I mean, we, we delight in irony, we delight in humor, we delight in, 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 uh, in our stage comedians who make fun of uh, our Stephen Colbert's and whatnot. Well, this is a, is a group of their Stephen Colbert's, and, uh, and they perform, and they're hilarious, and they're dangerous, and uh, they keep everybody on their toes. Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, I want to move the, the story uh, along, of course, um, to Edward uh, falling in love. And and this this results, I think, in him essentially getting kicked out of the out of the pueblo. And uh, I believe along the way, I guess off at schools at some point, he apparently became a, a secret and sincere uh, convert to Christianity. He's straddling two worlds. This is you know he's he's epitomizing what uh, went on with a lot of people. And uh, you talk about in the book, um, he essentially became like a lot of other refugees. And uh, we're, we have a refugee crisis, of course, going on today. Uh, we'll talk more about this, this fascinating story of Edward Proctor Hunt following the break. What is a subject that you are passionate about? What do you know more about than most? Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPIN. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. Navy drills using sonar can damage the hearing of whales. They depend upon hearing for all of their interactions in the environment. The ocean is a very dark place, and many scientists, including the great Sylvia Earle, have said that a deaf whale is a dead whale. Now the Navy agrees to limit sonar use where whales feed and breathe. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about Edward Proctor Hunt. He was born in 1861 in New Mexico's Acoma Pueblo. He lived a, a tribal life almost unchanged for centuries, but after attending government schools, he broke with these people's ancient codes to become a shopkeeper and controversial broker between Indian and white world. And uh, we'll get to this in the last uh, segment here. As a Wild West show Indian, he traveled Europe with his family. Saw his sons move into the modern world. They became silversmiths, painters, consultants on Indian lore. And in 1928, in a life-culminating experience, he recited his version of the origin myth of the Acoma Pueblo to Smithsonian Institution scholars. That resulted, and now there's a new version, an updated version, uh, um, edited with introduction by my guest today, Peter Nabokov. It's the origin myth of the Acoma Pueblo. Uh, the companion book, How the World Moves, The Odyssey of an American Indian Family by Peter Nabokov. Uh, Peter Nabokov is a um, professor at UCLA, and he'll be in Utah for several events as a part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival, uh, sponsored by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies and Utah Humanities Council. So those appearances are on October 1st, that's a Thursday, 11 a.m., in the BYU Zion Auditorium in the Joseph F. Smith Building. Then that evening, October 1st, 6 p.m. at University of Utah at the Carolyn Tanner Irish Humanities Building. 
and then uh, Friday, October 2nd, back to Brigham Young University in the Zion Auditorium of the Joseph F. Smith Building. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, quote here just a, a uh, paragraph from uh, Peter Nabokov's uh, introduction to the origin myth of the Acoma Pueblo. Um, after a shotgun ceremony, he, met, he meets and falls in love with Marie. Uh, her family doesn't uh, approve. After shotgun ceremony at nearby San Rafael, Marie's father dropped off the newlyweds near the eastern edge of the Malpais, a forbidding 114,000-acre volcanic wilderness that sprawls between Acoma and Zuni Pueblo territories. They set up camp in a crudely roofed rock shelter, and for three years here they raised the first three sons of their eventual 12 children. Um, <laughs> so eventually he and his wife get kicked out of the Pueblo? Yes. Yes, he comes back to the Pueblo uh, with a new name, Edward Proctor Hunt. I described earlier how names were given at the boarding schools, white names, Anglo names. And he brings back this name, and he brings back his secret, which is that he's converted to, to, to Protestantism. He's become a Protestant, and he has his Bible. So he's back on the Mesa. Uh, his dad is dead. He's he's the man of the family. He herds his sheep and tries to keep his inner identity uh, a secret. Uh, the people call him Daybreak. There, um, he grows his hair long again. He is whipped for having gone to school along with other schoolboys. Um, and um, any implication that he might be thinking he's better than somebody else. Um, and different uh, because in a small community where people have to constantly see each other every day and rely on each other, you can't have part-timers or withholders. You need, everybody needs to participate in the same events. So he kind of keeps this secret, but then, as you said, he, he, he falls in love, and he falls in love with a woman from an important family, from an aristocratic family, a well-to-do family, a leading family politically and religiously. And for reasons that we're not exactly clear, um, it could be because of this, it could be a, a clan, uh, 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 he, she and he are the same clan. Her father shows up one day, takes the two of them to the church in San Rafael. They're married and then drops them off and takes the two horses away. So they are suddenly left in the wilderness and I, I, in the book, I, I, I can't imagine, I say I can't imagine that, that it must not have resonated with the story that, you know, the Old Testament story, here they are, a new couple in the wilderness. And they survive there. And I, I, I utilize a lot of different information to suggest how they did survive, what kind of plant knowledge was part of ordinary training in the community, what sort of uh, natural uh, plants, what kind of small game was hunted, and what were the practices for that? How might this couple, what sort of survival skills had they inherited as part of their general training living on the Mesa that enabled them to survive here? And so they did until a remarkable thing happened, and that was that a Jewish trader, one of five Jewish brothers named Bebo, a Jewish trader working with the Akama people also fell in love with an Akama girl who was the sister of Edward Proctor Hunt's wife. So suddenly Edward, living in the wilderness, has a Jewish brother-in-law who is a trader, a very successful trader, and some say unscrupulous one, 
uh, uh, right nearby. And he apparently takes in Edward and apprentices him, and Edward learns the skills of being of running a store in Cubero, uh, which is a little community not far, 15, 16 miles max, 20 miles maybe, from Akamu. And uh, Edward um, has a gift for figures. This has appeared early on. He's, he's, in, he's a gifted guy, very smart, quick with languages, and Solomon Bebo is good with languages. Apparently, he speaks five fairly soon. He speaks Navajo. He speaks he speaks Akama. He speaks Spanish. He speaks English. He speaks German. He speaks Yiddish, and um, and and as, as well as his broken English. And so it's in that atmosphere and in the atmosphere of a store. And stores are interesting places. I I, I try to go into at some depth the role of merchant of the merchant in the Wild West, because I think it's underappreciated. In popular culture, of course, we fixate on sheriffs and Indian, cowboy, all of that, fur traders, what have you. But the place, the nexus, where many different kinds of folks, particularly in this multicultural corner of the Southwest, came together under the, the sort of... Um, uh, uh, cloak of, 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 of interaction over merchandise, the economic, uh, the common language of economics, you might say. Um, and there are different kinds of economics. Hispano ways of doing business are different from Anglo ways of different doing business, are different from Indian ways of doing business. Solomon braided all of these together for his multicultural clientele, Zunis coming in, Protestants coming in, people from Laguna coming in, Navajos coming in, Apaches coming in, uh, eventually Mormons uh, coming in, a whole host of different peoples with different belief systems crossing paths on the small, let's say, 20 by 20 or 30 by 30 foot floor of a trading post. And I, I go into that because being a merchant, and uh, being curious about other people and open to other people is one of those features that seems to have been part of Edward's character, seems to have been part of Solomon's character, and seems to have been part of the character that he imparted, that he and Marie imparted to their children. And so when Solomon Bebo pulls up stakes with his, with his Akama wife and eventually moves to San Francisco, there's an economic vacuum. And that's taken over by Edward, who starts a store that he runs until about 1917, 1918, in the little community of Akamita, which is a satellite village of, um, along with McCarty's, a satellite village of Akama Pueblo. We just have about uh, five minutes left. I want to, we'll have to skip past a lot of the rest of the story. We'll have to, <laughs> have to read it in the book, How the World Moves, The Odyssey of American Indian Family. I want to read this from your introduction to the book, Peter Nabokov, and, and then... Uh, and then, uh, with that as context, uh, ask you about this, as you call it, a culminating experience when um, Edward Proctor Hunt returns from from Europe. Uh, he, right. he goes to the Smithsonian and uh, and recounts the origin myth of his of his, of his people. Um, so. Uh, the story behind the Hunt's, I'm quoting Peter Nabokov here, the story behind the Hunt family's hegira is akin to that of refugees in general who must face anguishing decisions about staying put or reaching out for a more survivable and successful futures. Many strike hard bargains between tradition and progress and wind up fending for themselves through all manner of diasporas, both external and internal. 
Their stories are a defining aspect of our human experience as thousands of pre-modern communities produced post-modern families like the Hunts. This this was a journey that's epitomized by the Hunt Hunt family. What if you could connect that up to to this the telling of the the story? Uh, Edward Hunt uh, apparently it was important to him to to get this down. This, yeah, this it seems to have been. It seems to have been. And after almost two years, a year and a half, um, in Germany, traveling with the Sarasani Circus based in Dresden, Germany, which um, still, by the way, I went to Dresden, Germany to try to track it down. And Andreas uh, Sarasani uh, from this uh, the third or fourth generation of the circus still has does a circus in Dresden, Germany. And Dresden, Germany is also the home of the Karl May Museum, a, a German writer who popularized American Indians. In any case, they come back. They come back in 1928, and I'm not exactly clear about how the contact was made, but they wind up at the Smithsonian. And Edward has tried in years previous to narrate the origin myth, but people have only taken a part of it. He didn't know what happened to it. He never saw what Edward Curtis published in his 20 volumes that contained a portion of it. But here he has the ear of the Smithsonian scholars at the Bureau of American Ethnology on the mall in the red in the red rock castle that everybody knows, one of the first buildings on the mall, and uh, still uh, a, a, a sort of a, a site of, of important visitation. And he told for about six to eight weeks, from what I can gather, every day he and his sons would go in and he would narrate the origin myth, putting it together, cobbling it together from his various experiences, which, as I said before, included these initiation accounts, probably included stories told on long winter evenings uh, as well. And he put this together in much the way that other people with capacious minds uh, have done in Africa, Latin America, India, where you have a a master narrative being compiled out of uh, a range of oral traditions, greater or lesser, uh, stories remembered from the past, into one uh, long uh, a narrative of great magnitude, and that's what he did. And it was... Uh, 1928, but it wasn't published after being edited by a number of people until 1942 as a government document. And um, it being coming out in the middle of World War II, Edwards, one of Edward's sons, enmeshed in that conflict for four years. Wilbert, the one I talked to for about 13 years, um, it didn't get much play. But then slowly over time, others began to discover it and it became frequently anthologized. One French scholar even wrote a 400-page book based on it, and I became aware of it as an outsider looking for origin myths and their accounts of American Indian architecture for a big book I was doing on architecture. And that's what actually led to this particular project, because I have always was always curious, since it was published anonymously, not under the name of Edward Hunt, I always wondered who told it. And... Um, ultimately at the Smithsonian was able to track down not only who, but to find a piece of paper that had a phone number on it. I called that number, and it was in Albuquerque, uh, an elderly gentleman, the last of the 12 children of Edward Hunt, making jewelry 
in a in a trailer home north of Albuquerque, and I immediately flew out from my teaching job at the University of Wisconsin, and then began the series of interviews that led to the book. And we have now the origin myth of Acaba Pueblo, Edward Proctor Hunt, edited with an introduction, and notes by Peter Nabokov, and the companion book, How the World Moves, The Odyssey of an American Indian Family, by Peter Nabokov. Uh, just a time to mention this, uh, not to comment on it, uh, the son uh, of uh, Edward, Alfred, as his father had worried he might, at the end of his life, as you put it, uh, Peter Nabokov, became a Kiva man again. That seems like a fitting, fitting, uh, you know, uh, closing of the circle. He died in 1977. Uh, so Peter Nabokov will be uh, at three events in Utah as part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival, sponsored by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies and Utah Humanities Council on Thursday, October 1st, 11 a.m. in BYU's uh, Joseph F. Smith Building at the Zion Auditorium there, and back there at noon the following day on Friday, October 2nd. And in between, on October 1st, that Thursday, 6 p.m., at University of Utah in the Carolyn Tanner Irish Humanities Building. Peter Nabokov, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having read it so carefully. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, hope you'll join us again tomorrow, of course, for Access Utah. Thanks for joining us today. It's time for Utah StoryCorps. Everyday people sharing their stories at the StoryCorps recording booth in Vernal during July of this year. Vernal attorney and former state representative Gail McCackney also served as Utah's lieutenant governor. He talks about the Uinta Basin and why it was one of the last places in the state to be settled. The Uinta Basin in northeastern Utah was settled about 50 years after most of the rest of the state of Utah was settled because of the Indian Reservation. The Uinta and Ore Indian Reservation was created in 1860 by Abraham Lincoln by executive order. Vernal was never part of the Indian Reservation, but most of the rest of the Uinta Basin was. And so the original settlers in Vernal uh, were people from Colorado, Wyoming, usually uh, ranchers. So the original settlers in the Vernal area were not the Mormon pioneers, as happened in most of the rest of the state of Utah. Our community is organized a little bit differently. In Vernal, we had ranches scattered throughout the valley. The Ashley Valley is named after William Ashley, the famous fur trapper, And we have Ashley Creek, we have Ashley National Forest. I have a daughter named Ashley. Uh, The original name of the town of Duchesne on the west end of the basin was originally Theodore. And the town of Roosevelt was named Roosevelt after Theodore Roosevelt, who was the president of the United States. He was instrumental in opening up the reservation for settlement. And it wasn't until the Meeker Massacre over in Colorado, which is about 120 miles from here, where uh, a fracas between the Indians and the Indian agent and the Indian agent was killed, and fear went through this community, and they moved part of Ashley into what they called the Bench, which is now downtown Fernal, and started to build a fort, which they never finished because 
the settlers here were friends with the local Indians and helped them make peace with the Colorado Indians, and they never did finish the fort. But that brought the first houses into what is now downtown Vernal. One of the interesting things about Vernal is how it got its name. Some of the original settlers were the Hatches, and they applied for a post office for Hatchtown and were denied. So the people who uh, were making the application said, well, we don't care what it's called, we just need a post office. The postal workers suggested the name Vernal, stating that it meant a green, fertile place, which Vernal really wasn't at the time, but that's how Vernal got its name. This conversation was recorded at the StoryCorps booth in Vernal and will be archived at the Library of Congress. Support for this segment of the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible in part by our members and Memory Mark, helping families to preserve and relive precious memories that help keep us connected to the people we love. Information at MemoryMark.com. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Science at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock.